Welcome back, Warriors. Tansei Sego Anibuju, Queen Deluisi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, the Warrior Life Podcast. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And unfortunately, due to hundreds of years of violent colonization, oppression and dispossession, we are also actively engaged in education, advocacy and resistance against Canada's continued genocidal laws, policies and practices that continue to present a significant danger to our peoples, our cultures, our lands, our waters and the entire environment. And that's where we are today fighting against the genocide that continues because genocide is not a thing of the past it continues in full force and june is upon us now national indigenous history month and so far in the first few days of june indigenous peoples all over turtle island are dealing with the discovery of a mass grave of 215 children in Tecumloops and Chequemeck territory at the former residential school site. Indigenous peoples are also dealing with the coroner's inquest into the death of Joyce Eshaquan, a 37-year-old Atikamekw woman of seven children who faced racism and misogyny by hospital staff before she passed away. Today, a Senate report about the ongoing forced and coerced sterilizations of Indigenous women that continue into the present. Canada is battling St. Anne's residential school survivors in court. Canada is refusing to abide by the tribunal order to compensate First Nations children in foster care for the racism that Canada engaged in. Canada is failing to expedite the registration of thousands of First Nations women and children after generations of sex discrimination and exclusion from their communities. And the National Action Plan and Federal Pathway that is a fragmented mess that doesn't propose a plan to end genocide or take concrete actions to protect indigenous women and girls and the list of grave human rights abuses could go on and on land dispossession and destruction the criminalization of our hunting fishing and economic uh engagements So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the National Action Plan and Federal Pathway documents that were just released yesterday. Numerous Indigenous women experts, advocates, leaders, grassroots groups and organizations who work with Indigenous survivors, families and communities spoke out yesterday with grave concerns about Canada's failure to come up with a national coordinated plan. But before we jump into it, It's important to acknowledge the countless indigenous women, communities, families, survivors, experts and allies who have worked for decades, even generations, to shine a light on this crisis and demand accountability for the murders and disappearances of indigenous women and girls and two-spirit peoples by governments and their institutions. There would never have even been a national inquiry were it not for their determined advocacy and Canada's subsequent failure to create a proper plan to end genocide does not fall at the feet of those groups who provided input into that plan so today i'm honored to be joined by once again two indigenous women warriors that i admire for their tireless work for our peoples on the ground both of whom have been on the warrior uh, the warrior life podcast before Cookby Chief Judy Wilson is the chief of the Nisqually Indian Band in BC and also serves as the secretary treasurer of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Welcome to the show Chief Judy. Quite uh quite quite a request uh Cookby uh Skitchin Tesequatm uh Sequatmulu. I just said uh hi everyone and Chief Judy Wilson from the Nisqually Indian Band and we're part of the Sequatchewan Nation and there's about 32 communities originally and uh after the two epidemics there's 17 remaining today and I'm also a member of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs uh we serve about 110 uh First Nations outside of the treaty process in British Columbia the modern treaty process 
And um, I'm here today to talk about, you know, several issues like you mentioned that, you know, we started off in uh, in May was quite, uh, quite difficult. And then June, uh, uh, toward that last week, just hit us uh, left, right and center in regards to, you know, it was Truth and Reconciliation's uh, sixth anniversary on June 2nd. I'm not sure if there was any statements that went out, but that's, you know, six years uh, that we've been struggling with uh, Truth and Reconciliation for the, uh, those uh, 94 calls, and then National Inquiry on the Missing, Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, the, the second anniversary, and um, they announced their, they would launch, I guess, their action plan, national action plan, and, you know, we uh, did a did a podcast on it, or a, a media press release on it, and, you know, we found, like what I said right at the opening, I kind of opened up with a kind of a, a quiet comment on it, and I guess some of the media picked up, but then you know, it really resonated because it was uh, justice uh, delayed is still justice denied. And I really feel that uh, wholeheartedly because those survivors, those women, they've been waiting for a, a long time to, you know, to tell their story. So they told their story and it went through ceremony and the federal government, Trudeau, accepted that sacred bundle. And uh, I'm not sure if he understands what that really means because uh, he hasn't really fully, uh, you know, Canada hasn't acknowledged its own role in the genocide that they've uh, perpetrated, not not just to the missing, murdered Indigenous women and girls, but also the residential school. So all of the genocide acts you're talking about, you know, are happened to our people. And um, with the National Action Plan, it's like a action plan for an action plan and a plan for the implementation plan. So it's very confusing. Uh, and a lot of the uh, groups like the National Women's Association, they're developing their own action plan. And I heard in BC, I can't confirm it, but I heard we were supposed to be developing our own action plan. Like it's so fragmented across Canada. That's not the cohesiveness or the inclusiveness or the transparency we were looking for in regarding a national action plan. And now the provinces are mirroring uh, what the federal action plan looks like. And we haven't even been part of anything. Uh, we, I'm part of a, the UNIBC and Chiefs. We're a part of a coalition group in uh, Vancouver. It's about 30 organizations and survivors and, you know, uh, families. Uh, you know, we come together and we've been having to do this work. We're not funded, resourced in any shape or form for it. We, we just come together and we uh, submitted you know, in, in originally to the National Inquiry. And uh, we've been having, it's like pushing rocks uphill for, you know, for all the work we do. Um, some of our uh, members, uh, they advocate and volunteer to help women through the, the uh, when they're going to courts about their loved ones who are murdered or missing and, and the ones that are being searched for. So we volunteer and we sit uh, with the families and we help them. There's like a lot of work that, that you know, if you do ground searches, organizing mm -hmm. and mobilizing, that's not mm -hmm. including all the uh, you know mental health supports and everything. And you know, then you know, then when if they get to a court stage, then there's a lot of support that's needed. And and you know what the criminal justice system's like? It's like they're re-traumatized and re-victimized going through that entire process. And that's what we do because mm -hmm. there is no resources. There is no one doing this work. It's horrendous. Just when you think. You heard the worst story that you could in your life, then you you hear something that's even worse. Even worse. It just it's just uh, our women are the violence they face, and you know the types of you know how they're murdered, and you know uh, some are just completely vanished on on the face mm -hmm. of this earth. They can't even find anything, and and there but there are people that know what happened, and it's uh, you know that's where you know they get those cold cases and then they they get tips and stuff because i've known some cases one family uh in the north here the sister keeps me uh updated but you know they they get a tip and you know mm -hmm. we support her in you know getting you know some of the the uh searches done you know and that's 30 years you know for, for an entire family that went missing yeah and yeah. you know like this is the reality they, we face uh, this is what we go through and they have a mm -hmm. national action plan not transparent not inclusive mm -hmm. not um structured in a way it could be because they say oh we got survivors and i'm respecting the ones that are in the circle 
but I know they could they could have did a better job where our survivors could have been more included in this entire process. And our organization, you know, is a quite a large organization in BC. We weren't included. Mm-hmm. We d- told directly the ADM Gina Wilson about the issues and concerns, and she just sat there and nodded her head. Uh, and you know, we followed up with a letter and nothing. Nothing. Then all of a sudden, another lady came and met with us and didn't know anything. Uh, and, and Minister Bennett knew all of this. Uh, you know, we, we sent all of these letters. It's not like the government didn't know. So we felt very dismissed in this whole process. Uh, we don't mm-hmm. feel inclusive. They went around and selectively selected people that are who are like, we haven't heard any reports from anybody. So who are they reporting to? Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not putting down the people that were selected. I'm putting, I'm squarely putting the accountability on the government for structuring it the way they structured it um, because it's it's not meaningful it's not substantive and we're going to have problems like three years to wait for some of these programs and these actual things to hit the ground is too too oh, delayed too long mm-hmm. it's too long well let's bring into this conversation one of my other dear friends um ellen gabriel she is um well-known. She's the former spokesperson chosen by the people of the Longhouse and her community of Gunasatage during the siege of Gunasatage, otherwise known as the Oka Crisis. She's also been the past president of Quebec Native Women's Association, and she's been an Indigenous human rights and environmental activist for decades, done a significant amount of international work, and she's also been on this podcast and really is strongly connected to her culture, the traditional governance of her nation and the grassroots people who are often left out of these discussions. So welcome to the podcast, Ellen. So I just said thank you, Pam for inviting me and uh, uh, to greet um, all of creation and, and Mother Earth. I'm Turtle Clan from the community of Ganesadagi. Well, maybe I could start off with you, Ellen, and just say, you know, um, by now you've probably had a chance to at least review some of the National Action Plan and the Federal Pathways. What was your overall impression? Does this look like a pathway to end genocide? Uh, no, actually. Um, and again, I'm going to echo what Judy, uh, Chief Judy, was saying. It's it's uh, not a reflection on the efforts of the family who started this this strong movement. That you know, in the beginning, there was like a community feeling that we were all together, working on this together. Uh, but it, it 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 relinquishes any kind of responsibility by the government. Uh, the first Stolen Sisters report that came out in 2004 by Amnesty International and the Native Women's Association of Canada had talked about that the root causes are in colonization. So we look at the Indian Act and it's a devaluing of women, Indigenous women. And and so when we, when we examine this, um, what is purported to be a national plan of action, I'm, I'm, I agree with Judy, it's like, so where is the plan? How much longer do we have to wait? And, and I, you know, I remember the words of, of Carolyn Bennett. She said, you know, we're not going to wait for this national plan of action uh, to implement something. So why are they waiting for so long? You can't blame the pandemic because uh, this has been going on for, for quite, a, quite a long time. And the root causes, some of it, there's, there's not enough accountability and responsibility to, for the police to take action. I mean, part of the problem was that the police were not responding properly to the violence perpetrated against Indigenous women. And so there's nothing in there really other than funding different government entities to take sensitivity, cultural sensitivity classes that, that have been talked about and have been done for decades. Uh, there's nothing new that, that really is there to really help prevent the living Indigenous women from exposure and experiencing the, the rates of violence that is that is in these reports. From the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which also talked about violence against Indigenous women, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women Inquiry. And, 
you know, these are just, they're, they're powerful reports that are sitting on shelves. The, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to give more money to the colonial entity that's creating the genocide that we are experiencing, you know, the grief that we're feeling, um, not just for the children who have been stolen, but, but the women that, that, you know, the grandmothers, the aunties, the sisters, uh, the friends that have gone, like Helen Betty Osborne, uh, the trust, they don't talk about the, you know, that this is a broken relationship. There is no trust. There is no faith in the policing authorities to take this seriously. In 2006, an annual general assembly, the chief of police created a resolution that they would deal with murdered and missing indigenous women. They would have a protocol. It's, it's 2021 and they still haven't come up with the, this, this protocol. So there's so many things that it, I mean, the report has a lot of potential to it. Um, we, we have to start looking at trying to pull out what is good because it's, it, it's founded on the work that has been done before but it doesn't hold the government's feet to the fire. It doesn't, it doesn't bring about the kind of change that I think that the families and the people who are still here and have been working on this issue, it doesn't provide the solutions. It's just another form, I, I think, in my, in my humble opinion, uh, for government to drag its feet and, and to not really address the issue of genocide and to decolonize the relationship that we have if you're going to change the mentality of the people uh, who are the perpetrators and who are probably still still walking around free, having killed uh, indigenous women, we're not dealing with the attitude of society. We're not educating in the schools that, that violence is not part of our way. We're talking about murdered and missing indigenous women. They're putting incarceration involved into it. They're putting all kinds of other issues into it. We're talking about the dignity, the safety, the elimination of violence. And these are all under international human rights covenants. Not, not just declarations, but treaties that the government of Canada um, has signed on to. And there is nothing in there that talks about their international human rights obligations other than a, a bare mention of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. You know, this is one of my concerns that I've been expressing in the media for the last few days too. what you were saying, Ellen, about that this isn't a plan where you see the government of Canada and the provinces have stood up and said, we are guilty of genocide. Here's all the ways in which our laws, policies and practices contribute to murdered and missing, exploited, disappeared women and girls. And here's the immediate urgent steps we're going to take and treat this as a national crisis like we would a pandemic or any other national crisis if that just seems to be missing and one of the points i wanted to pick up on something that you said yesterday um chief judy and mentioned today is the degree of fragmentation so if you look at the national action plan it's actually not a comprehensive document it's a separate little chapter for each group and then a separate federal pathway. And then we don't see comprehensive plans from the provinces, but now we see rolling out an AFN has their own plan. The Native Women's Association of Canada has their own plan. The Métis Nation has their own plan. And then a whole bunch of subgroups have their own plan. And they, they don't all say the same thing. And there's literally no coordination and i'm wondering if you can talk about like what that's going to mean for implementation of any of these plans well the fragmented implementation will mean that our survivors will continue to struggle the way they're struggling and that they weren't aren't going to get the substantive support that they originally uh, had wanted because you have to ask how does those multiple fragmented action plans going to match up with any budgetary uh, processes and how is the 2.2 billion uh, going to be dispersed? Uh, and I, I think we had sort of an idea when they rolled it out that it'll go to those existing um, organizations possibly. And as you know, a lot of those organizations are already struggling and already probably need top-up dollars. And then, then think how much is actually gonna go to these uh, meaningful programs for our uh, missing, murdered Indigenous women and girls. And if the action plans are all, um, you're not hitting the core issues, 
uh, we will still have systemic systemic violence and against and racism and poor treatment of our uh, women and girls and two-spirited uh, you know how is that going to work to address the uh, the core issues and then the other part that's not really addressed is the uh, institutional and the um, like the RCMP and all the other institutions uh, Canada how how is that going to impact because the National Choir actually only had six months in doing the expert and institutional hearings so uh, that was never really fully uh, fully developed out how it could have been as part of the hearings and then you have all these fragmented action plans uh, how is it really uh, hitting those issues so uh, I think we're going to have a very problematic uh, time uh, pulling together all these multiple level of action plans for substantive meaningful impact and changes to our women unfortunately so that's why I was saying uh, what I said in the outset it's uh, justice delayed is still justice denied for our women and uh, unfortunately we're going to be doing the same thing we've had to do without resources without support and you know I, I can uh, you know it's very difficult because you know our, our women are still going missing and murdered and what is and, and what is the prevention piece look like as well you know the, the, there's so many facets to this that's going to be really challenging to pull together and have a coordinated uh, effort on it and I still think the federal government doesn't really understand uh, what these core issues are they they say oh we got an action plan but you know, it, it doesn't really fully um, meet the needs what, what we were hoping it would have. Well, some of what you are saying here is some of the things that really caused me great concern that the way it reads now, it's like an open call for organizations just to make funding proposals for programs and services that largely already exist. And you don't really see uh, the, the genocide part of it where state-based genocide, state-based violence, you know, from policing, the extractive industry, healthcare industry, like all of the institutions and governments that are also perpetrators of violence against Native women and murders of Native women. You don't see any focus or attention on that. It's really just, here you go, apply for some more money and they're basically jumbling up their entire Indigenous portfolio, I don't know what else to call it, into a giant funding proposal. And, you know, like Ellen, you, this concerns me greatly because if you think about the people on the ground, how is this going to impact the women and children on the ground if we can't move past what it is they're already doing? Well, I, I agree with you because... I think what all the organizations need to do is put their egos aside and think about the realities that Indigenous women are facing. I mean, you mentioned a resource development where there are man camps and, you know, some communities have, um, have checkpoints so that the workers can't come into the community, which I think is one way to keep our people safe. Uh, I think there's, there's so many instances where we can see that the government, um, this is just about funding for them and they think that they can throw money and it's all going to be okay when we we know that it's not going to be okay. That the solutions have been identified, but now we need to enable the people to carry out those solutions. We know, we know what needs to be done and at so many levels as through all those reports that, that we've mentioned from the Royal Commission, TRC and Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women Inquiry, we need a major transformation in society. We need to, to have reconciliation amongst ourselves because colonization has created this traumatic cycle, this historical trauma that we continue to see repeated time and time again within our communities, which is, you know, don't feel, don't speak, uh, don't tell. This is, in, this is embedded in the, from one of the legacies of the Indian residential school system, which we're seeing today which we see like the grief nationally of that, that hurts the hearts of the indigenous people in the communities. And we need to figure out a way where we're not talking about funding. What we need to do is to make that major shift that we've been all been trying to get Canadian society to, to realize. 
And we have to understand that the investments that are coming into Canada, they're not just Canadian. There are European, there are Asian companies that come in and they are dispossessing us even more as if we don't, as if we haven't lost enough land. So the issues are very complex. We don't need to teach government what those issues are. They know. It just, they don't want to pay for it. They want to throw a few pennies here and there, satisfy the organizations who they give a lot of airtime to, while the, while the people who are working on the ground are trying, who are actually trying to make a difference in the lives of Indigenous people are not well supported. Uh, if, if we're talking about incarceration, that's one issue. But let's look at this, those, that cycle of, of incarceration. Let's look at that cycle of dysfunction that we have in our communities caused by the genocidal assimilation policies of Canada, which are still continuing. We have no trust in Canada. We have no trust in the police. And in fact, we don't have trust amongst each other. And what we need to do is, is you know, change that, that mindset we have in, inside ourselves because we know what the solutions are of how to keep our women safe. We know what the priorities are. We are facing, you know, this Anthropocene epoch that that we are all experiencing in this on this planet, and we have to start pulling our socks up and stop waiting for government to to take that national plan of action. We know what this what the solutions are to keep people safe, but we don't have, as Judy said, we don't have the resources to do it. We need a real traditional warrior society that protects the women. The, the children and the people. And that means, you know, like it's that hanging tobacco, that's what we call it in, 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 our, in our language. Those who are carrying the burden of peace. And we need those people, men and women alike, to take part in that. We don't want to have more inquiries. We don't want to have the government tell us they're going to give us a little piece of money here to shut us up. This problem is not going to go away with money. This problem is only going to go away if there is a genuine and sincere political will and there is a will within our communities and amongst Canadian society to educate themselves what genocide actually means, what colonization has done to us, and how are we going to change it. We are the, we are the authors of our own change. And we cannot wait for Canada because it doesn't care if we are extinct. It does not care about us. It is doing something to check the box to say to the UN, we have come up with a national plan of action. All the, all the conversations they've had with CEDA, the, the Committee for Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, they can tick the box and say, oh, look, look, Canada is really a, a really nice place to live. But they're not getting rid. They're just brushing the dirt under the carpet. And so we need to look at, at this as how can we get Canadian entities to comply with human rights, from policing, lawyers, judges, teachers, educators, everybody, including ourselves. And I think that's what's missing in this, this national report. They're talking about potential liability. They're talking about funding. And like I said before, no amount of money, as we have seen from the Indian Residential School Settlement, is going to change how we feel about ourselves, and is going to change the situation. We are the authors of our own destiny and we need to take back control. The problem is, is that Canada has always used force against our people. And so this, I think, is, is a much bigger issue than what a national plan of action is supposed to address. There's the issue of housing, there's the issue of shelters, um, and there's the there's a place, I think, for all of what has been said in, in, and mentioned in this national, national plan of action. But until we can, we can get ourselves together and act as nations in solidarity with each other, to act like a community again, Canada is going to continue to win and divide and conquer. And there is, there is no place for that anymore. We cannot afford to lose any more time because those children are depending on us. They are looking at us. And if they only see us fighting over money, then that's what they're going to learn. And it's really about, I want to be safe as an Indigenous woman. I want to be safe in a, in a racist community that continues to hate Mohawks. I want every Indigenous person to be safe in this, in this homeland of ours. 
And it's not going to be possible if you're going to depend on government to do that because they don't care about us. No, it's such an important point. And the other thing that they do is they keep us in perpetual engagement, perpetual consultation. It, and it's perpetual. It never ends. So the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples wasn't good enough to get the views of Indigenous peoples on the basics. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, nation to nation, there's going to be differences. But, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, apparently that wasn't enough in mm -hmm. order to get, I mean, it was massive. You got the testimony of the survivors themselves, the communities about what they want. It's written in a report. Why on earth would you now take that and say, oh, well, we can't actually implement it until we engage? And then the engagement is where they get you. It's endless meetings and tables and commissions and committees to do what we already told them they need to do. And here we have the National Inquiry. We said all of these things. Here's all of the things you need to do and more. And no, 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 no. We need to engage for another two years. Oh, and we still don't have a full plan. So we're going to keep engaging for the next three years until we come up with an implementation plan. It's like never ending. And at mm -hmm. some point, I just think it's actually more valuable for us to pull out of that process mm -hmm. and say, no, you know what? We're, we're done engaging. Just deal with it. And, you know, Chief Judy, one of the things that you said yesterday, it, you know, we didn't have a lot of time to talk about all the things we wanted to. But you said, you know, this this long-standing call by Indigenous peoples to implement UNDRIP into this country and make all Canadian laws compliant with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But even that doesn't have a central focus in this National Action Plan, even though at the beginning of the National Action Plan, it says one of our principles is that we're going to make sure we go forward in a way that's grounded in human rights. But, okay, so where is your comprehensive plan to address the United Nations, uh, you know, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I mean, what do you think about, you know, Canada's stalling on that? Well, first and foremost, when I talk about the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, I explain that our Indigenous rights, like the Mohawk, uh, mm -hmm. Thailand rights, uh, the Squapam, Thailand rights, uh, all of our uh, Indigenous uh, Thailand rights across Canada, they're the first and foremost because they're still intact. Uh, they're, they're intact, like in our nation, and in many uh, in BC, the the ones we represent outside the modern treaty process, we have not relinquished, surrendered, or given up any of those rights uh, as as long as well as our land, so that they're the laws are still there. And uh, so the next thing on the UN Declaration is that the uh, we weren't thought of in the UN Universal Human Rights Declaration. I think it's 1948. Um, so that's why we had to pen our own Indigenous rights, uh, human rights framework, and many of our people did that across Turtle Island and globally. And then the Human Rights Council revised it, and then the UN uh, United Nations further revised that um, when we were, um, they wouldn't, you know, make it more palatable, I guess, to the state government. So we ended up with the version we ended up. The one clause that didn't change is the uh, self-determination clause. So that's just my grandson. Um, we, uh, so self-determination, uh, my cousin, uh, Chief Arthur Manning used to always say, uh, he passed away now, but he used to always say uh, self-determination is the antidote for colonization. So, you know, in our own self-determination that uh, Ellen uh, just talked about is very much so what we need to do. Uh, we have to... Uh, really work on, you know, that self-determination, what that looks like for us. And he actually wrote two books about it. And uh, I think they're very important books and kind of gave us a little bit of a blueprint what we could look at in uh, doing our self-determination plans. Uh, so that, you know, and, and I know the government twists those words around on us. They use it uh, like self-government and self-determination. They kind of use them interchangeably now. But self-determination has more of a meaning where it comes from the nation because, uh, you know, it's all that decolonizing process. And 
uh, you know, we've been conditioned under the Indian Act, uh, you know, for programs and services. And, you know, those are just come back to us in forms of poverty, the program services, because all of the wealth and the land that were uh, dispossessed from us, that were taken from us, uh, you know, because if we were managing our territories and we had all the wealth from our territories, do you think we'd be going to the government? No, because we would have it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would be managing it uh, to ensure there's housing, to ensure there's water, uh, to ensure that, you know, there's uh, the, the families are taken care of and that there's jobs. And, you know, we're still carrying on our way of life, but Canada didn't want us to carry on our way of life because they wanted us to colonize. They wanted to assimilate us into society. And that's what all the legislation and policy was intent. That's what reserves were intent. That's what residential schools were intending to do. Um, they didn't think we would uh, last this long, uh, the Indian problem, the Indian land claims question. They didn't think we'd last because we were supposed to assimilate, which uh, in our hearts we'd, we will not ever assimilate because we, we enjoy our way of life. We enjoy you know, being connected with Mother Earth, the water. We enjoy you know, carrying out the teachings and being caretakers of Mother Earth. And all of our way of life includes, you know, our spiritual way of life as well. So, and and those are the teachings we have. And I think that's what's really kept us going all of these years. And so we have a lot of ceremonies, uh, uh, a lot of things that we do in our life to balance and harmonize ourselves. So the the colonized uh, ways, uh, you know, I think uh, that's what we're dealing with. And um, I agree stepping out because we had to step out to do our own programs. Our, so I shouldn't say program, but our, our own way to stand our women up. It was called House of the Moon. So it's uh, across North America, across Turtle Island, and it includes tribes uh, north and south of the medicine line. So we tra- the women train each other and do presentations and curriculum and so we train each other to go in back into our own community and into our own nations and families and uh teach uh and continue to build up uh you know our ourselves and our families for wellness and healing and you know all uh, there's a wide spectrum of different training Uh, and so it's uh you know uh addressing violence against women missing murdered women and also self-defense so uh the house of the moon launched and it uh, we already had seven graduates, so the next intake is in August, and that'll be for 14, so we're doubling that. And it's not government-funded, it's not government-sponsored uh, in any way, so it's just people doing that for people, and especially women. And so we carry that on. That's just one example of women doing things themselves. And I already talked about the advocacy work in, in the legal injustice and the, you know, the f- supporting missing murdered women and families. So those are the, there's a wide, probably more uh, ways uh, that people are doing that. And my mother, she's uh, 83 and she's been doing this life all of her own. She funds a lot of the things she does by her own uh, work. She does, uh, you know, uh, and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the uh, families uh, go to her, so she helps everyone and the different institutions, education and communities. So she's been living that way of life. And, you know, it's a, and, and she has not depended on any government funding or the band or anybody or me or anybody. She just gets an idea and she does it. So she, she's a true example. I guess we have a lot of elders that have lived that way. They, they, they look at the things happening and they kind of shake their head and they, they just keep on doing what they're doing, and that's real true self-determination, true sovereignty, because mm-hmm. we're keeping to our way of life, and we're keeping to what we do, and we're helping the next generation with that knowledge, that you know, language, with that understanding, so that they can uh, survive these attacks, uh, these genocide attacks on us, and they can survive all the violence that's being perpetuated on us. And I think that's what's needed to help our young people survive. And those mm-hmm. dynamic, uh, young, educated ones that have both worlds, they're going to make those substantive changes. And I think that's got to be our hope for the future. And my grandmother raised me and, and taught me a lot of things. And, you know, a lot of the responsibility, uh, you know, that you have as a mother and a grandmother. And uh, my mother does that as well. So I think really that's where a lot of the teachings need to come from so that we can survive and continue this because mm-hmm. Canada's going to fight us every inch of the way. Uh, my cousin had a saying, he said, don't put your head on the shoulder of the guy, you know, taking your, stealing your land, meaning Trudeau, right? <laughs> you know, so you can't rely on Trudeau. So we have to, you know, really look uh, at how we're doing this. And unfortunately, it's not resourced, it's not funded, and we just have to find those creative ways because mm-hmm. the government policies are, are really 
enticing, you know, the elected system, you know, a certain path. And, you know, we have to be very watchful of that. And, you know, we, we always, always have to have, you know, a really grounding in our ways uh, so that we don't lose sight of where we're going. And I really liked uh, hearing what Ellen said and what you said about, uh, you know, our our future, because we're going to continue this. We're not giving up our warrior life anytime soon. Yeah. We can't. It's ingrained in us. This is yeah. what we do. And this is how our people survive. So you have to keep mm-hmm. doing it. Exactly. I, and, you know, I really like what both of you say. And, it, you know, you've been on this podcast before. And it always starts first and foremost with us, our laws, our values, our principles, our traditions and customs. You know, it's the beauty of who we are as a people, but it's also the strength of who we are. And nothing Canada has ever done has been able to take that away. They've tried, they've interfered with it, they've manipulated with it, they tried to erase it, they tried to eliminate us, but our laws are still here. They've never been extinguished. They can't be extinguished so long as we are here on our lands, our laws reign. Um, And when it comes to Canada and its purported laws, it can't follow its own laws. You know, Mm -hmm. at least we follow and are committed to our laws. It's a part of our identity. Canada's an outlaw. That's the only reason why international human rights laws exist. It's for states who can't follow their own laws and who are essentially renegades and outlaws in the international community. And Ellen, I wanted to ask you a bit about this because, you know, the Royal Commission, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the National Inquiry, and every United Nations human rights treaty body has said that the root of these problems is that Canada can't not only can it not follow its own laws, but it can't, it doesn't live up to the basic minimum human rights standards that exist all around the world. And they only exist to regulate states. They don't regulate us. We have our own laws, but they regulate states. And I'm wondering, like, in all of your international work, you know, trying to get the Convention on the Rights of the Child to be implemented in Canada, trying to get the elimination of discrimination against women or racial discrimination or human rights or even UNDRIP implemented into Canada. Why do you think that's such a challenge for Canada? They sign on to these things and they they resist implementing it into their own domestic laws here in this country. I, I think I think there's there's a certain thing about the character of Canada and the fact that, you know, since the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, or since, since the crisis here in, in 1990, Indigenous people have been rising, and they've been rising. And we, we know about their system. They don't know anything about ours because they don't care to learn. And I, I think one of, one of the things that you, you mentioned before was the, the resiliency and the resiliency is, is what's going to keep us going. It's going to, it's going to sustain uh, our advocacy uh, because Canada really, I think we've, we've, we're putting a lot of blemishes for the last 31 years on their reputation as human rights uh, defenders. They're really actually human rights abusers. And, you know, Stephen Harper said it, said it best, uh, his, his, his character and his attitude, you know, he was inviting at one of the G7 summits, you know, come to Canada and invest because there's lots of land and lots of resources. When it comes to respecting the rights of Indigenous people, they don't respect us. And they have been able to do so as they've been doing uh, with Wet'suwet'en, with, with here in Ganesadago and 1492 land back the Mi'kmaq people, um, with force. This is how they see implementing human rights, the protection of their economic rights. And that's all that matters. Human rights don't matter. Uh, human rights are, are the, on the, the lowest rung of that, that totem pole, excuse, excuse the expression. Uh, they know the right words to say. They have a bureaucratic culture who are the gatekeepers you have over, what, 250 employees in Justice Canada working against Indigenous people's human rights, trying to, to, play, to play the game of semantics of, of, look, what the government is doing. We're spending, you know, $10 billion on Indigenous people for, for X, Y, and Z. So it, it, they must be doing something right when, in actuality, you know, 60, 64, 67% of all funding for Indigenous people is actually going to, to Canadian entities. 
it's not coming to the communities. So they're not really helping indigenous people. It, it's an, it's a nice, uh, uh, mirrors and, and, uh, sleight of hand. Uh, it's, it's coercive, uh, and because the UN does not have an implementation, uh, it can it, it politely criticizes states. There's no implementation of those treaties, and there needs to be stronger implementation in the UN, other than the Security uh, Security Council, which is really headed by the United States. There needs to be something within countries to stop human rights abuses against Indigenous people. I think that. We should take all the indigenous people in Canada should go to The Hague, go to the UN and make a genocidal complaint, a crime against humanity, against the government of Canada and its provinces. Because we cannot forget the provinces. They are just as guilty as the, the federal government. And with this national action plan, there's nothing to bring, even like even if, if it were a good plan, there's nothing to bring along the side, the provinces and the territories. So it's, it's like, it stays here. It's staying here and it's not filtering down to the realities of people on a daily basis. You think the municipality of Oka is gonna respect the national action plan against violence against women? No, they can't even respect us. So I, it goes back to that major society shift change that we need, which I think there's a lot of good Canadians out there who respect Indigenous people and want to make change because it's horrific. It's horrific what we're seeing unfolding, uh, you know, just before the pandemic and, and now with the discovery. And I'm sure there's more uh, children's bodies that we are going to be discovering. And, and again, we're going to relive that cycle of grief that we're all feeling right now. That's what genocide looks like. You know, this is what, it's mass graves, unmarked graves, murdered and missing. Like, this is literally what genocide looks like. We, I don't know what more proof they need. But, um, you know, before we run out of time, I want to ask you both a really important question. What is the most important thing you think that federal and provincial governments should do within the next few weeks and months to really address genocide? Not like all this program and service stuff, but like, really, what do you think? What would be your call to them, G Chief Judy? Yeah, I wanted to say we have a rare moment here. And I think it's a turning point, what Ellen's describing. We have a lot of the public with us on this issue. Uh, I have my phone, emails, and texts. People are continually, they don't know where to send them. So they're just sending them out to different people, I guess. But we have a rare moment here that we could really uh, uh, pull together. How are we gonna work uh, in regards to this reconciliation? Uh, because I was saying it's beyond reconciliation. Uh, the chiefs are saying they want restitution. What's restitution look like? It's giving the land back. It's giving our resources back. It's giving us that recognition. And so we can carry on you know, our self-determination. I think that's what has to happen. Because bottom line, uh, every, um, Every commission that's been from the Royal Commission to the Truth and Reconciliation and the uh, National Inquiry against Missing, Murdered, Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirited, uh, I think the base is because we're dispossessed off our land. We're dispossessed uh, and uh, our Thailand rights are, are, you know, assumed under the uh, federal government and then the provinces received land and resources. So even though I fight on all these human rights issues, I know it always goes back to the land. Uh, you know, we, you know, that big slogan, land back, you know, and uh, in BC, a lot of the land out here is outside of treaty. So in that, um, what do we want them to do? We want them to recognize, we want them to be able to we stand up our laws in our own lands. And we have a say in our land and our resources so we can build our nations up and build back what our governance structures were, because our governance structures were much more um, exacting, much more reaching, far reaching than what even the provincial and federal laws are, you know, to take care of the earth. Uh, you know, they're pulling out old growth trees now and, you know, to the last tree and they're polluting the waters, uh, all of the waters. And, you know, they, they're, you know, just impacting every level you could think of fisheries, wild salmon. I've been doing a lot of work on that. 
you know, to bring the wild salmon back and, uh, you know, everything that they've destroyed, uh, we're having to go in and rebuild and, uh, you know, so that there's only one Mother Earth, uh, you know, that mm -hmm. that's the big thing on, on this genocide because whatever they perpetuate on the land, uh, they're perpetuating against our people and, mm -hmm. and a lot to our women because they have to break the foundation and the women are the foundation. My grandmother had always said that. Mm -hmm. So in, when you're looking at what, uh, you know, that genocide looks like, uh, for what they're doing, they're trying to break us. They're trying to uh, remove us, eradicate us. Uh, that's what our elders would say. They're eradicating us and removing us from the land because they want the land and the resources. So uh, if, if we're able to get to a place where we uh, can, you know, uh, have our, our territories the way, because the Squatum, we have mm -hmm. 180,000 square kilometers. We're in one of the largest tribes in the interior of British Columbia. And that's why they want to break us. They want us to force us into treaty and force us into incremental agreements with the government to, to so that we can um, put our Thailand rights uh, uh, and have their land. They, they access our land and resources. So it goes back to the land fight. And then, uh, you know, with that, we had our governance uh, uh, structures and our women had a, a, a say. We were coexisting and we, we were very much part of the, the warrior life, uh, you know, we had women warriors uh, and we also had the, um, you know, the governance structures and the, how the men worked and how the women worked. So we had our governance very structured and sound. We we uh, had survived thousands of years. It was just till this disruption of the reserves and residential schools and the violence against women that started breaking down the families, breaking down us individually and breaking our people apart, our nations apart that divide and uh, rule tactic the government's always done. But many of us are awake to that and, and we know that and, you know, we just need to keep continuing. And I go throughout our territory and I'm mm -hmm. still talking to many people who are upholding those values still and I respect that. And I know the Indian Act chief and council structures um, are not, they're just part of the extensions of the government and, um, you know, they're there for programs and services and until our people don't need them. In our community, I think we're less than half dependent now on program services, which is not an easy way, but uh, we have to keep building it mm -hmm. so we're truly self-determined and truly not dependent on the government. Uh, it, I'm not saying the government doesn't owe us that money because they're removing mm -hmm. it from all our resources and our land and water. We, we do need our full money uh, from our land and our resources. That's what they don't want to relinquish. They're, they're, they don't want to relinquish the land and the resources. They they want to control them and they want to continue continue their assumed jurisdiction and authority over it. That's what our fight is. And I and I know we still have to have the healing part and keep mm -hmm. our people spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically together and intact and, and continue teaching them our way of life. Because I believe our way of life, we shared our resources. Uh, we shared with people, and uh, we but we had all roles and expectations, and uh, you know to live on our land. Uh, so that's yeah. where I'd like to get back to, and addressing the genocide. It truly is Canada has to wake up. It is genocide. Mm -hmm. uh, Trudeau stuttered the words when he said it the first time. He said it again, but in a way that's still not accountable. So that we have to get to to that, and even in the archbishops across Canada. They're trying to say these apologies, but then they say, but we'll pray for you. Come and pray with us our way. Um, going to, they're still discounting, you know, what we, we have our own way yeah. of life, our own uh, spiritual ways and stuff. So it's still uh, colonization and, and genocide at its best. And we, I'm, I'm so happy to be here on Warrior Life and know you've got a Warrior Life community. And, you know, we could all continue to need to fight the good fight because it is Canada will not relinquish in any which way, shape, or form. But we have a rare opportunity when working with a lot of the people that are uh, waking up to this now and how we mm -hmm. need their support in making these changes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so, Ellen, I'd love to hear from you. What could the federal provincial government do in the next weeks or months to protect women and children from violence and murders and disappearances? Well, it's going to take longer than a week, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, there, there needs to be reparations. I think I'll, I'll echo what, what Judy has already mentioned, but reparations, respect for our human rights to look at us as human beings. We are always looked at as if we're the other, like we're subhuman the way they did 500 years ago. Um, 
and and to respect the rights of the women. You know, the Iroquois people, the Haudenosaunee people, uh, the women are title holders to the land. They do not respect that. They still refuse to respect that. I've I've asked something to I asked something to Mr. Prime Minister Trudeau in regards to our land issue, which is put a moratorium on all development. And imagine if they did that, we would have the chance at least one week, one week break. We sit down, we talk, and we understand each other. They educate themselves on what what the causes of the genocide are. They educate themselves on what decolonization is by us telling them what we what we our version of it and to understand for them to understand our laws and to be educated on our laws and why they're so important to help the survival of this this the, our species uh to to create a sustainable way of life i think that one of the the things that they always look at us as you know they commodify our human rights they don't look at us as as human beings um, we need to have a renewed relationship. There, there is, like I said before, there's no trust. You can't have a relationship, a healthy relationship anyways, if the trust is missing. And for those who are on the front lines to provide them support, the Friendship Center, the Native Women's Shelter in Montreal works with women who are living on the street and, and tries to help them. Uh, and, and, and so we need to look at their healing, helping those people who are the most vulnerable in society, um, but but also help to how do we how do you deal with genocide? Ask them that question. How how do you deal with genocide? How do you overcome that? Uh, World War Two, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights came out because of World War Two and the genocide, the Holocaust against the Jews. Um, our our people fought in that war. You know, the Iroquois Confederacy was declared war before the United States. I think even before Canada of what was going on in Germany. So we are a proud people to look at us in the richness that we have and the dignity that, that we have that has not been granted to us because they don't, they don't like us because of the racism. To look at the people like Joyce Eshaquan, who was in pain, where you are most vulnerable, where you are sick, you are depending on people to provide you that care so you can be healthy, that was denied to her. You would think that a society would wake up with that, but it doesn't. Because the media, and I want to call upon the media, the media has a huge role to play in the attitudes of society, and they block out the voices of the people at the grassroots. They block out what it actually means and we're just three second sound bites. And I think that's what we need to do is retrain ourselves to sit and to listen. We had all those inquiries. We shouldn't have had to have another inquiry to, to examine the actions or the lack of actions of Canada. Uh, we need a break. We need peace. And, and you cannot have peace as long as there is fear and hatred amongst people. That's, it's not going to happen. Um, I think we need to look at the fact that, you know, Indigenous youth are leaving the reserves because there's nothing for them there. Why is there nothing for them there? It's because the Indian Act system is there and hangs over our head. And so the Indian Act system needs to be broken. We need to chop that into small pieces where it's not going to bug us anymore and that our laws will be there at the forefront because our laws respect the earth, respect the waters, respect each other. And if they can understand a simple concept like that, maybe they are redeemable. And, and, but for now, I'm going to wait because I've seen too much reports on paper. Too many trees have been cut for these reports that have not been implemented any solutions. So I always have to have hope. And you always have to have hope. And I'm asking Canadians, I'm asking Quebecois, I'm asking all the people who are in the international community listening to your podcast to help us to overcome these challenges and hurdles because we deserve peace. We've given so much to this world and it's time for the world to step up and help Indigenous peoples. Well, that's a perfect call to action. This is Canadians, the international community, other countries, really need to step up. We have never really asked for more than just peace. 
you know, let's live together in peace. And I think it's about time. So thank you both so much for sharing. We don't get an opportunity in the media to talk more than two or three minutes. Even if it's a panel, it'll be like a seven minute panel and you you cannot get the, the full scope of the problem and the impact and, and what we've been saying for years about what we need going forward. And so thank you. Thank you for taking the time because, you know, we have a younger generation that's listening to this. What does the warrior life mean? And it is about, you know, working towards peace and love for your community and, you know, protecting your laws and, and customs. And that's just so important. So thank you, Chief Judy. Thank you, Ellen. I always admire everything that you both do as warrior women and for taking the time to do this. And thanks to all of you who are listening. You know, both our young warriors coming up who are looking for this direction and inspiration, and also to all of the Canadians and Americans and international people who listen to this, you have a role to play. Don't think of this podcast as information or education or entertainment. This is about education for action. You've heard this now, take action in all of the different ways that you can take. It can literally mean the matter of life and death. For indigenous peoples and we've long sided in in wars in treaties in trade in marriage and community alongside of you it's now time for you to step up and side with us so thank you so much i'll make sure to post a link to uh everybody's contact information the national action plan the federal pathway um the national inquiry so that you have easy links to all of it um, but we need you to push. And don't forget, share this podcast far and wide. Use it in your classrooms, in your institutions. Uh, make sure that you're lifting up the voices of Indigenous women warriors and Indigenous peoples all over. And you can also always support us anytime. Check out my website. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag, my friends. <laughs>